Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode number 79 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. This week, we've got something a bit different for you, and it's a first for the podcast in that I'm interviewing a claimant, so an employee who has pursued a claim in the Employment Tribunal and then to the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Hopefully you will find it interesting. I'm not going to give too much of an introduction because the podcast this time is pretty long because Terry, who I interviewed, has a lot to say and it's very interesting stuff. I hope you'll agree. Unfortunately, we had a few gremlins in the technical system. So whilst Terry's audio sounds okay, mine sounds like I'm in a basement or in a hole somewhere. So I'm really sorry for that. Um, You'll be glad to know that I'm not talking very much in the podcast this time anyway. I do apologise for the audio this time. I do hope you'll agree that it is great content this week. So I'm here with Terry Brooks, who, for those of you who read my newsletter, will know that I reported on a case a couple of weeks back in which Terry was the claimant in the case, in a case that went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal, and Interestingly, when I was preparing the wording for the case, I actually Googled and looked up Terry on LinkedIn to see if I could contact her just to get some more information from her side of the story about the case. It's quite an interesting one. And then Terry reached out to me via the article and left a comment and we had an exchange from there. And she very kindly agreed to come onto the podcast and to talk about the case from her perspective. And I'm sure you'll, you'll testify to this as well, Terry. When you're doing your, when you're studying a law degree or your training and all of that sort of thing, you learn about lots of cases and case law names, and you just learn the legal principles, and you know about the facts because that's how you tend to remember them, and they kind of make some of the legal stuff, the dry legal stuff, interesting. But you kind of forget actually that there is a person whose life was affected by that case, um, how whatever the legal outcome, it obviously has an impact on you. So. I thought it was really interesting to actually speak to somebody who I've written about and didn't know until I learned about your case through the um, Employment Appeal Tribunal, and um, just to hear your side of things. So welcome onto the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, talking to me. Yeah. So you you did you did study law as well, didn't you, at degree level? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, do you remember learning all of those cases and the names and things? We did contract law um, as the first part of my undergraduate law degree. So what they call an LLB, um, and I, I studied that over a four-year period. And yeah, you, you do. You go through cases. You go through case law principles, but you don't actually go through their application. So you kind of learn it, but you're learning it really to jump through hoops and to pass the exams at the end of the year or at the end of each term or whenever you have them. But yeah, so, so to be honest, I don't actually remember many from my actual undergraduate degree. But then when I was doing the LPC, um, again, you go through the case law, but it's more applicable. And I think that's where I've picked up most of my legal knowledge from, to be honest. Yeah, I know. I completely agree with you. The, so for those who um, don't know, the LPC is the legal... Practical, Practical. <laughs> yeah. and you have to you have to study for it's a postgraduate diploma in law, and at the moment that is you have to study for that before you can become a trainee solicitor, and then you have to train before you can then be qualified. That's what we're referring to. Um, 
But yeah, I, I know what you mean. On the on the degree, it's, it's very different, isn't it, to the um, the LPC. And I obviously I represent employees as well as employers in the employment tribunal. And although I you know I know their personal stories and I see it from their personal side of things, when you come to researching the law, you still do forget that there is a person and that has an impact on them. So just tell me a little bit about this this case and how it came about and how it's impacted you. Okay, um, well, I received a 2-2 um, undergraduate law degree um, from the University of Sussex and I graduated in 2012 um, and I gave birth to my daughter, at which point I took some time out from studying law and, and studying generally, um, although I did receive a full-time position at a local university as a disability advisor. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I couldn't continue with that with regards to childcare um, and just trying to balance everything and, and the cost. And I missed law, to be honest. I, it was the one thing I did after my law degree that really showed me that I was good at law, that I was interested in it. And it, it was something I'd always wanted to do. I wanted to be a lawyer since I was nine years old. And it just didn't feel right kind of straying from that pathway. And so in 2014, I came across London Met, who were offering the LPC. Again, cost came into it, and it was a lot cheaper than most places like BPP. And so I thought, okay, we'll, we'll see what the LPC is like, see what they have to offer. And it was just an amazing place. I had a really rough time as an undergraduate with my disabilities. I wasn't catered for very well. I was the first person in the law department at Sussex to have Asperger's. Um, and so it was very, very difficult. And I even had a year out due to my mental health. So... My three-year law degree actually took me four years. And so when I got to London Met, I was an absolute nervous wreck. I didn't know if I would continue with law. I didn't know if I'd be any good on the LPC. And you just don't know how different the legal practice course is in relation to a degree until you start doing it. The teachers and the lecturers were absolutely fantastic, very supportive, and my confidence grew. And so I managed to complete the first year of my LPC, no problem, distinction student. And at that point, I thought, okay, well, I've only got a 2-2, but I'm good at law. I'm proving now that I can do it at this level. It's postgraduate level and I'm doing really well. So it's time to look for a training contract, as you do, um, which is, the, of course, two-year kind of period of training that you need to be to actually qualify to be a solicitor. And um, I looked for, I've sent out a number of applications and I looked at the government legal service. And one of my key interests in, in law is employment law, uh, disability discrimination in particular, education and special educational needs law. And um, I thought, well, if I was to get a job with the government working for maybe the Department of Education or working with the business innovation skills, that I'd be able to help in higher education and help businesses understand what it's like to have a disability and that those people with disabilities can still achieve something in the right environment and with the right support. So in June 2015, I started looking up the application process for the government legal service and I notified them that I had disabilities but I was hoping to apply and that I would need necessary reasonable adjustments. I listed the necessary reasonable adjustments and one of those was that I need an alternative mode of assessment um, in regards to psychometric testing um, and this has always been the case so it wasn't just for this particular application it's been throughout my higher education throughout my working career basically I've I've never been able to do psychometric testing based on my disabilities um, and so I put in the request um, and initially it came back that the reasonable adjustments I requested could be met that they would be carried out 
And so I, I was like, great, excellent, okay. Um, and it came up to, it got close, slightly co- closer. Um, I think it was on the 1st of July, or around about the 1st of July when the actual applications open. I contacted them again saying, well, you know, what's happening with the reasonable adjustments? Are they going to be put into place? And I didn't actually hear anything until further into the process, which was the middle of July. And somebody got back to me saying, well, actually, no, we're not putting these reasonable adjustments in place. That It's not happening. And I explained to them that psychometric testing is discriminatory against those with autistic spectrum conditions because our thought processes are different. Uh, We look at the world in a different way. It's, It's not saying we can't be tested or that we're not capable but we we just need a different way of looking at things and we need other people to kind of make those adjustments for us so that we are able to be tested in the same way, but we just perceive things slightly different and that's to be taken into account. Um, and then by the time the process had closed on, I think it was 31st of July, um, at that point it was either a case of, well, I either fill up the application form without the reasonable adjustments in place or I just don't attempt to get a job with the government legal service and I wasn't one to kind of quit on principle really um, so at which point I decided to submit my application form and the situational judgment test or the SJT is the first test that you have to pass to go on to the next one which is a critical reasoning test and there's a verbal reasoning test and so the SJT is based on a series of questions all of which are multiple choice and you basically choose whichever one is closest to what you would do in that particular situation. Um, and then the government legal service would mark it accordingly. And if it matches what they have um, and their answer, then you'd get a full mark or you'd get a certain amount of marks. If it didn't, you'd get no marks at all. And then the other two in between, you wouldn't get any marks for either because they didn't grade the marking scheme. It was literally a case of it was right or it was wrong and it matched what they had on record. So I submitted my application form, submitted the SJT, got the results back saying that I had failed, in which case I spoke to senior management in the recruitment team and I said, well, you know, I've attempted the test, I've obviously uh, failed, therefore I'd like to take a complaint forward. Um, I wrote down my situation, sent it through to senior management, they then forwarded it to the government legal service recruitment manager and basically they were quite happy with the fact that psychometric tests did not discriminate against those with disabilities, in particular ASCs. They, I sent them over a number of articles written by various authors, barristers, academics in the field that said psychometric testing was not the best way to test them. Um, I also referred them to the National Autistic Society website and had kind of ideas and best practice for those um, employers that wanted to employ somebody with autistic spectrum conditions um, and it was all ignored um, and so I said to the recruitment manager I'm afraid you know if, if you're not willing to you know understand what I'm saying and, and grant my reasonable adjustments and I I'm, I'm, will have no option but to take further action and take it to court um, so come around I think it was November time or well September time I got in contact with ACAS um, and I was speaking to the recruitment manager, hoping that she would kind of change her mind and that the government legal service would change their attitude towards the situation. Got in touch with ACAS and ACAS. Initially, the person that I spoke to at ACAS actually said that I was mad. Was that part of the early conciliation process? Yes, the early conciliation process. So when you take a case to tribunal, you have to obviously go through an early conciliation process. It's now part of the ET1 form, which is the form you send off to tribunal service. 
You don't have to take part in early conciliation, but you do have to take serious consideration over it. And you get a month to do that. And then at the end of that month, regardless of whether you've actually taken part or not, you then get an early conciliation number. Well, I had contacted ACAS and said, look, I I wish to consider early consideration for this. This is my situation. And the first person I spoke to said, you're absolutely crazy. They're not going to change their processes for one person. You're mad. Well, that's just (laughs) indicative of what you're talking about, isn't it? Well, exactly. So it it was a prime example, really. So not only, you know, was I having issues with the government legal service, the most probably the most formidable opponent you could think of legally. But, yeah, I've got ACAS now telling me that actually, you you know, you can't even get early conciliation number because you're insane. And, you know, just because you've got a disability, they're not going to change their processes for everybody. So, you know, this is what I was kind of up against. Um, And but I knew that I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go any further without that early conciliation number. So I needed that number. So I phoned back again and I spoke to a, a woman this time and I explained the situation that I spoke to one of her colleagues. He, he said that he would send me over an early conciliation number, although he said I was mad. Um, he said that I shouldn't take action. And she put me on the line to her manager and the manager of ACAS, who I spoke to at that time, then turned around and said, well, I will deal with that member of staff. Um, I apologise on his behalf. Um, and then actually sent me over the early conciliation number. So I did get it in the end, but it was a battle just to even get that far. Say, I've not heard of that before from ACAS. That's, you know, sounds quite unusual. He even said it was unusual in the fact that, you know, because obviously ACAS is supposed to be impartial. They're supposed to, you know, that's the whole point of mediation. They're supposed to be like a middle ground. But yeah, this gentleman had his own opinions, which he quite happily voiced over the phone to me, which I believe, like I said, his manager dealt with in due course. But yes, it, it, it was uh, a bit of a battle just to get the ET1 form in. Um, <laughs> take take the case any further but at that point it was clear so we had the month where the the early conciliation was under consideration obviously the government legal service had at that point turned around and said well you've mentioned legal action I can't talk to you anymore this is from the recruitment manager Um, however just to forewarn you that we will defend this position we will defend our position vehemently basically Uh, she kind of and that she said you know but take care, good luck. So there's no animosity as such. It was just the fact that they were very strict on their position and, and that's what they were going to stick to. Got the early conciliation number, filled out the ET1. Um, and then by January 2016, we had a preliminary hearing booked. All the paperwork went through. But the preliminary hearing was due to the fact that the government legal service didn't believe I had a disability. So Asperger's wasn't seen as being a disability per se in their eyes initially um, and then obviously at the preliminary hearing it was also um, made clear as to what I was actually going to be claiming for. Terry do you think that they genuinely thought that or do you think it was tactical just to put pressure on you to try and drop the case? It, it could I mean it could be a bit of both I mean Asperger's in criminal law is a completely different matter in relation to people's perceptions of it and whether or not it is a disability so, you know, in relation to sentencing those um, in criminal law, it's seen as disease of the mind, etc. You know, are they mentally ill? You know, are they able to know their actions? And so, you know, in relation to equality law and discrimination cases, why should it be much different? You know, is this really a disability? People don't really know that much about it, regardless of always campaigning and awareness raising. The science behind it is kind of is still going on at a very deep level. So it's possible 
that they wanted to put pressure on me. But I think looking at my background um, in relation to doing a law degree, doing the LPC, something like that is not going to throw me off going into the legal profession very easily. And if I said that I'm going to do take this to court because what you're doing is wrong, then it's going to take a lot more than a preliminary hearing, I think, um, to throw me off the case. If the judge had said, you know, you're in the wrong, um, this can't, you know, I don't think this can go ahead, then that would be a different matter. But I'm certainly not frightened of adversaries. So how did you get over that hurdle? Did you have to produce expert witness evidence? Yeah, I mean, the, the preliminary hearing for me personally was really tight. There was a lot of pressure because when we got the case management order through, which I think was about November, December time, um, I, had, I remember turning over about 54 medical documents or pages of medical documents and I had, to, I had a turnaround time of two days to do it in. So I had to send three copies of those documents, and I think one to the government legal service, one to the court, and two lots to the court, sorry. Um, and so to do that in two days' time, I think it was either a test of my mettle to see whether or not I was actually going to go through with it, or just to see whether or not I actually had enough evidence there to take to court to, to, to begin with. But yeah, so there was, there was a lot of paperwork, a lot of evidence and that that went through. And I, the expert reports and everything were in there as well from, you know, from my side, definitely. Um, I didn't get the copy of, or, or the expert from the other side didn't actually come until after the preliminary hearing. And so at the preliminary hearing, the judge ruled that, that you did have a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. The judge was in absolutely no doubt that the Asperger's was uh, definitely deemed as a disability under that act. And like I said, I, you know, I had my medical evidence and everything sorted, including my expert report at that point. But um, it was then thrown to the government legal service for them to get their expert report from a chosen expert within the field ready for the court hearing. Okay. And what did their expert say? Uh, it's quite interesting. Well, I mean, I, I was dreading it because, you know, a case like this had never been done before. Um, it was a test case. Nobody actually questioned psychometric testing before. In, in general, people seem to go with the status quo. So I was ex- I was expecting him to come back and say, yes, totally agreement with the government legal service. What Miss Brooks has done is wrong. Um, it was actually quite the opposite. Dr. Rajpal um, was actually in my favour and suggested that psychometric testing generally would be of a hindrance to those with autistic spectrum conditions, that due to a lack of social imagination, that the SJT could be proven difficult for those with autistic spectrum conditions and agreed with my expert, who incidentally agreed with my suggestion that psychometric testing was indirectly discriminate. So that was quite a pleasant surprise, but it, it but it all hinged on the lack of social imagination, um, and that was one of the key points that had to be argued in court. And so even after their own expert had come out in your favour, did they they then still pressed ahead with defending the claim? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, every point of the claim, right the way from talking to the recruitment manager, um, and I tried to get her to see sense right the way through early conciliation, gave it a month. The government legal service didn't even talk to ACAS. They just literally turned around and said, no, we're not interested. So we never had mediation at that point. I, I even said to the judge at the preliminary hearing about mediation, he said, well, the monetary value here is too little and it would be, therefore it wouldn't be in the interest to, to go through judiciary mediation because it cost too much money, too much time. And it, so even after the preliminary hearing, it was still a case of they didn't really want to negotiate or mediate it was literally a case of right we're going to go to litigation and that's it and we'll see how far you get kind of thing 
and that's what happened. So I think it was, I'm trying to remember the dates now, January's preliminary. I know June 28th is when we got the, the judgment. So around June time we had the, yeah, and I was in my, doing my exams. So in June, we then had the three day hearing, which actually turned into be about two and a half. And yeah, it, it went ahead. I was against a grade C treasury barrister. Really? Yeah. And I was against the solicitor that I'd been corresponding with in relation to all the documents leading up to the employment tribunal. And they also had three members of, well, two members of senior management and one member of TMPW, who's their resourcing company, attend the ET as witnesses. And I was just there on my own. So throughout the case, you represented yourself? Yeah, from start to finish. And at the same time you were doing your exam? Yeah, so I'm a single mum to a four-year-old, so obviously she's my first priority, I was looking after her. The preliminary hearing was at the same time as my, I think it was the, yeah, the preliminary hearing was at the first set of exams. So in the LPC in my second year, the exams got split into two sections. So you do your core subjects in the early part of the year, which is January, February time, you then do your electives in the June, July time. So when I had the preliminary hearing, I was studying for my first set of exams. Then when I actually had the hearing, I was doing my second lot of exams. Yeah, I think many people would struggle just with the exams or, or just with the employment tribunal, not doing both. It, it was it was really tough. It, it, it was I say it's really stressful, but if you're training in the legal profession, you expect to get stressed. It's not a, it's not an easy profession to go into. Um, it's certainly not something an, an easy profession to maintain once you're there. So yeah, so I was expecting a certain amount of stress, but yeah, it was certainly a, a different kind and not very pleasant. But I managed to get through it. I managed to get a 75% distinction overall on my LPC. So I was pleased with that. And did your sort of lecturers and everyone during the PLC? Sorry, LPC. Did they um, know you were doing this? Were they supportive? It's hard to say. They kind of, one of my lecturers turned around and I, when I explained to them what had happened um, and I said, you know, I th- I'm, go- I'm going to take them to court. I think I'm going to take them to court because what they've done is wrong. Um, and I was fully aware from the beginning that this doesn't just affect me. This is going to affect hundreds, maybe even thousands. Um, there's a lot of people out there now that are diagnosed with ASCs and only 16% of them are empl- in employment. So I knew what the impact of this case could be. And I told my lecturers, and my lecturers were like, well, we can't get involved in any court cases in relation to students, which is fully understandable. So I, I didn't get any advice from them. I didn't get any support from them, really. I think, to be honest, they even questioned whether or not I was capable of taking on the government legal service and whether or not I'd be successful. And I, I think they even worried as to whether or not this would come out in my favour. One of my lecturers actually turned around and just looked at me and went, well, I think you're very brave. But it was in that kind of tone where you think you're really kind of condescending. <laughs> but, you know, um, so there's support in my studies and they were aware that I was doing it. But when it came to the court case itself, everybody, even my closest friends who have known me for years, kind of distanced themselves from me and thought that she's taking on a bigger mouthful than she can chew this time. That's really interesting, isn't it? And do you think it's because of who your uh, the the um the opponent was, I suppose, or do you think they would have been that same way if it had been, you know, against any old employer? I think most of it was to do with the fact that it was against the government. I, I mean, I remember one of my lecturers saying, "Nobody wins against government. You'll, you'll be lucky if you kind of you get it to the ET." And 
you know, and everything goes fine for you on that level. But as soon as the ET was over and it went to EAT, I mean, even my lecturers were shocked, I think, some of them. I don't think it was necessarily all about the government legal service. I think it's because of the fact that I've got Asperger's as well. My mental health, like I said, I suffered as an undergraduate. I can't say that I don't find things difficult, but I can certainly manage. And I, I certainly, when it comes to something I enjoy and something I'm interested in and things like, you know, like law, for instance, um, I've certainly got no issues at all. But people just see you as this vulnerable adult with disabilities. And I think they forget what you're capable of as an individual and actually what you can do. Um, and I think this was one of those times where everybody thought, well, she's got disabilities, but she's got to be in a bonnet. She, she's going to take this all the way. But we'll just stay clear because eventually we're going to have to pick up the pieces, which obviously wasn't the case. Great. And, and really interesting that people have that view of it and just as an aside I've just recently been doing a mini series of the podcast on mental health and one of the questions I threw out there to my LinkedIn and Facebook sort of community was why do you think people and employers behave badly when it when dealing with those employees who do have mental health conditions and lots of them came back and said because they are they felt that it was because of a sense of not knowing what what to do a bit of being afraid of the unknown and that sort of thing so it's interesting that you're sort of those around you those close to you perhaps had those same feelings which is why they took a step back i'd agree with that i'd completely agree with that you know employers don't know how to deal with you i mean you have disability teams in higher education institutions but each individual is different and um you could have three or four people with an autistic spectrum condition but they will all be different they will be different in how they handle it, in whether they use it to their strength or whether they don't. And there'll be hidden disabilities underlying there as well. And you've just got to see everybody for an individual, get to know them, get to know who they are, not just on paper, but actually talk to them and find out whether or not they are actually coping with it and whether or not they are actually capable of a position rather than just judging them and tarnish them all with the same brush. It's like, OK, autism. We've got this preconceived idea of what it is. We've all seen the BBC kind of television programs and everything that show sensory issues or show issues with loud noises or crowded spaces and so on but there's loads of people with autistic spectrum conditions especially adults that can cope with loud noises or can cope in crowded situations and I so I don't think we'll ever get truly and fairly represented just simply because we're so different. And actually, you're the perfect example of why you should treat people individually. So to have gone through and done what you've done just illustrates that you can get by very well with with a disability. Absolutely. I mean, it's, ta- it's taken a lot of time, a lot of effort to get to where I am. Like I said, I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was nine years old. I'm now 33. So I certainly haven't taken the short route, but I'm still going. and I still hope to get a training contract and, again, prove myself on a daily basis, not just on a one-off court case. But it was definitely one of those cases where hopefully I did showcase what I was capable of. Obviously, from the solicitor's point of view, um, doing all the paperwork, getting expert witnesses together, filing everything, meeting the case management order deadlines, but also representing myself in court as a barrister as well. And as I said, I was up against a grade C Treasury barrister at the Employment Tribunal. But when it came to the Employment Appeals Tribunal, I was up against a grade B Treasury barrister which is pretty much one down from silk, really, because then you get the band A's, um, which have all been there for many, many years, extremely complex cases, and usually QC's or silk. Just tell us then a bit about the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Um, what, were the, what were the grounds of appeal, and, and what happened when you got to the Appeal Tribunal? Well, if I'm, completely, if I'm completely honest with you, I was very confused as to why it made it 
to appeal tribunal. I, I wasn't too sure. Basically, obviously, the government legal service put forward their application and then it's down to the judge to decide as to whether or not it's going to go through, whether or not we're going to have another kind of prelim hearing. And I got a letter through after they put in their application and obviously I put in my response, um, which is a very in-depth response. And basically, I got a letter back saying, OK, well, it will go through to appeal and it just says grounds for appeal and it just says reasons are arguable. And I was like, oh, OK. So that could mean absolutely anything. I mean, the whole point of litigation is that you're basically having one big argument. So for me, it didn't show any clarity as to why it went through. But some of the grounds that the government legal service, I think, were raising was things like the ET shouldn't have found in her favour because they they were accused of showing favouritism or being bowled over by me or being impressed by me um, because they made a comment in the judgment regarding how I came across in court. So that that was that kind of came up. Um, the fact that psychometric tests again weren't discriminatory. The whole point of the EAT, from my point of view, and I think um, the EAT judges agreed actually when they heard the case, was that the government legal service were just trying to get their case heard again. A key piece of this was when they tried to place a transcript of the employment tribunal before the EAT, but that transcript had actually been written by the government legal service solicitor. And so I obviously um, wanted it rejected from court. And I was luckily successful in that because they'd they'd missed the case management order deadline. I mean, case management orders are crucial when it comes to any case, you know, and if, if you can't meet a case management deadline, then you really need to get in touch with the court straight away. You need to get, you know, start putting in applications for extensions and so on. And it's absolutely vital that you meet those deadlines. Um, and I think any solicitor would agree with me, or even barrister for that matter, especially with the amount of cases that the courts have coming through and the amount of paperwork and things that are involved. But the case management order specifically gave a deadline in relation to um, evidence that wasn't already listed um, in the application or the response. And if we wanted it used in court, we should have notified them by the end of November. Well, this it came up literally about three or four weeks before the EAT when this transcript appeared from, in my eyes, nowhere, because I had no knowledge of it at all. Um, and the government legal service wanted to submit it, and I, I blatantly refused. One, on the point that, in my eyes, the EAT is not there to hear something that's already been heard again. And that, for me, is a key principle. And secondly, just because they met, they failed to meet the case management order deadline, and therefore it shouldn't be submitted. The registrar initially agreed with me. Um, then the government legal service then tried to apply against the registrar or appeal against the registrar. And then finally, the judge agreed with me and the uh, transcript wasn't allowed. So there was always a battle going on at some point, even between the appeals or between the hearings. There was always a lot of paperwork, a lot of applications being thrown about, which certainly kept me on my toes throughout. Yeah, and as we know, the um, appeal tribunal found, again, in your favour and refuse their appeal and have they indicated if they're going to take it any further or as far as you're concerned that's the end of it now the government legal service like they said from the very beginning they will defend their position pretty much to the end you know they'll they'll do whatever they can to get their case heard and so on and it was very clear from the beginning from the moment I, I won the employment tribunal that they were going to appeal at every available opportunity so they had the employment tribunal, They, I won that, then they appealed, then they asked for a judgment review, the judgment review came back in my favour, then they went to the, the EAT, 
the EAT has come back in my favour and right at the end of the hearing, the EAT, they asked permission to appeal, which was then refused by Lord Justice Kerr. But I really thought, to be honest, that because they could appeal within the 21-day window after that or from the date of the judgment, I really assumed that they were going to appeal again. But to date, I've heard nothing. So I think I'm in the clear. Okay. I'm Um, grateful for that. Yeah. And um and obviously you were awarded only like a nominal sum in compensation. Yeah. Um, have they paid that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So after the employment tribunal, I received two hundred and sixty pounds in expenses, um, as what they classed as an ex gratia payment, because although they didn't want to take any responsibility, obviously, uh, for what they'd done, they said that they could obviously understand my position and for wanting to take it to court. Um, so they were kind enough to pay me my expenses, but then they said that they wouldn't pay anything else until after the appeal. So I contacted them after the EAT and I said, okay, this was the agreement that after the appeal you would pay the, ne- the rest of the money if I was to win. So they were very kind enough in sending me uh, £600 after that. I did take a couple of emails and an extra two or three weeks to m- for me to get my formal apology which I've now received, although it, you can tell by the way it was written, it was very, it was done very begrudgingly. That's interesting, really interesting that the judge ordered them to send you a formal apology because it doesn't happen very often, in my experience. No, it was something I requested from the very beginning. The whole point of this court case was on principle. It was just the fact that I knew what they were doing was wrong. Um, I'd come across similar situations in my past quite a lot, so... I would apply for jobs and I'd get knocked back. You'd know it would be something to do with your mental health, your disability and the fact that you've disclosed. But you also know that if you don't disclose, you don't get the support you need within the workplace. And I've just got to the point now where I'm looking for, you know, a, a proper career. And for me, law has always been it. But I assumed, and obviously very naively, that people in careers such as law, that when it comes to recruitment, they would be a lot more fair and a lot more just. And obviously, when I applied for the government legal service, this wasn't the case. And I I think it it just come to me then that it was like, look, I've shown you a history of me not being able to do these tests. I've made it clear what my disabilities are and what my requirements are. Um, But I know that I'm more than capable of doing this job. You know, I've I've done the same qualifications as everyone else in my position and trying to get a training contract. I've done legal advice for charities. I've worked in law centres. So I'm not completely delusional about what the legal um, profession entails. And so all I wanted really was a chance. And the fact that the government legal service, they say that there are two ticks employer, that we accept um, applications from everybody, even if you haven't got a law qualification or a law degree, you've done the GDL, and things like that, that, that they say that they accept thing, um, applications from those with two twos. And so for me, it just seemed, you know, and it was one of those things that if you want disability to be on the radar, if you want mental health awareness to be a high priority, if you want people to make changes, and really the government legal service are the people to do it. They're in the prime position, really, to make or to lead by example. Um, and so hence why I applied. And so when I decided to apply, I decided to ask for the minimal amount in finances or in compensation, which was £600 um, according to the Vento guidelines. Um, And then obviously I applied for my £260 in expenses, so hence the minimal amount. The formal apology is just out of principle. If you do something wrong, 
you know, accept you've done something wrong and apologize for it. And so for me, it was like, okay, well, you've done something really wrong here. I'm not asking for a lot of money, but I would like you to accept the fact that you've done something wrong. You need to rectify it. And therefore, I'd like an apology, please. And so that's what I requested, along with them to review their processes. So even if they didn't give me a job, and it's highly unlikely that they will, that other applicants with autistic spectrum conditions are now in a position to say, here's proof that I've got a history of not being able to do these tests. I've got a lack in social imagination, and therefore I request a reasonable adjustment. And and now the government legal service have got to provide that. Yeah, and did you ever find out why they went from saying at the one point that they would make these adjustments to then saying that they wouldn't? I have, do you know what, that was never explained to me. I have absolutely no idea. And although I did kind of try and chase it up, I did ask the question, you know, and I even said, I think, in my initial complaint to them, which went through the processes, it was very much a case of I, I was told that this would be okay. And then it kind of got changed. It was like, oh, well, it, we might be able to do it for the next two tests. But I was like, yes, but I can't get through to the next two tests if you don't make these reasonable adjustments on the first one. Um, and the thing is, the situational judgment test or in relation to reasonable adjustments, it's very interesting setup because you can actually put in a little box on the application form what disabilities you've got and what adjustments you need. But for whatever reason, it doesn't matter what disability, whether it's an autistic spectrum condition, mental health condition or physical disability, no reasonable adjustments are to be made to the SJT as far as the government legal service is concerned. There, there's no... I mean, when I applied, certainly, there was no clear way of contacting anybody to say, these are my disabilities, I need these reasonable adjustments put into place for the SJT. There was just no way of doing it. Whereas, as soon as you filled out your application form, the box that you filled in would then apply to every test afterwards. And, you know, for a lot of us, that's that's just not going to happen because we're not going to get there. So, so you're saying then that whatever the disability, they they didn't have anything set up to make reasonable adjustments for those tests? Especially not for the SJT. With regards to the two tests that followed, anything that you wrote down in that box may have been considered. But if you've got, I don't know, um, I mean, luckily the test isn't timed, so you don't need to worry about the time factor per se, as long as you get it in between in, within the four weeks of the opening um, of the application process. But there was certainly no way of ticking a box to say you've got a disability and the adjustments you need for that test are these. I actually ended up contacting TMP directly through email because they'd sent me emails previously in relation to when the application process was open. And so I just sent whoever contacted me an email saying this is the situation. There was no clear instruction at that time as to that was the thing to do or how to go about it. And TMP are the provider of the psychometric testing well, yeah, TMP are um, yeah a resource company um, that kind of help with the recruitment in relation to the government legal service. And let's just be clear for people who don't know, this test has nothing to do with your intelligence or your ability to do the job or to know the law. It's not legal questions, is it? No, and I think this was make this is one of the key elements about psychometric testing, which makes them so interesting. Um, because you'll find that if you go into a job in accounting, for instance, you go into a job in HR, you go into a legal job, there were always there, there may always be um, a, a psychometric test at an assessment centre, and you will find that the questions they ask you will be based in maybe a, you know an HR scenario or a legal scenario. 
But that's got absolutely nothing to do with your knowledge. It's more about variables of how you deal with people and deal with situations. But the, but tests are like any, especially if they're online. If you're doing a test online, like the Government Legal Service, and you're doing the application in your own home, I mean, there's still possibilities that you could cheat. So that there's nothing stopping somebody else doing that test for you. There's nothing stopping you from having 101 pieces of paper in front of you telling you what the answers might be or um, that kind of thing. You know, they don't, they don't test your legal knowledge. They're not asking you how much you know about the law or whether or not you know the process of the employment tribunal or a criminal court. So it's merely a tool for sifting, isn't it? Sifting a num- large number of applications and it's just a one way of sort of sorting them out and to who you're going to take forward and who you're not. Unfortunately, that's what they've become. Um, psychometric tests were starting to become widely used back in the 1950s. And this was predominantly to test um, aptitude and your attitude, really, kind of what kind of personalities you had. That's how they all started as personality tests. And then they became more and more popular um, and used um, in the wider employment fields. And yeah, and it is used as a sifting process, but that was not what they were initially designed for. And they've never been validated on people with disabilities, and they've certainly never been validated in relation to people with autistic spectrum conditions. What advice would you give to employers or HR professionals who may be listening to this podcast and listening to your story? What would you, advice would you give them for recruitment and, and how they deal with people with various types of disability in the future? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, they're always going to say, you know, there's a certain level of competence that they're going to require from employees, and that's absolutely fine. So you're going to look for certain qualifications um, in certain areas, but it's not just about the qualifications. Look at the things that they've done on top of that in relation to voluntary work, if not paid employment, because even people, you know, people with disabilities, as well as those that haven't, will always try and gain as much experience in their chosen field as they possibly can. They're always going to be knowledgeable about it and they're always going to go for the same qualifications. We are certainly no different in that area. But see what how their disability affects them first and foremost. So give them an opportunity or a way of contacting you and not just a tick box on a form but to say, yes, okay, I've got a disability. This is how it affects me. This is what I need. And then go from there. If, talk to them if, if you're able to. So if you call them in for interview, and just just be aware of them as a person, really, rather than just seeing them on a piece of paper and thinking that you know what the disability is and how it affects them. But actually, not knowing that person, you're, ne- you're never going to know the answer to that question. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you, Terry. And um, everything you said today has been, I think, really useful for, for all listeners to the podcast. Certainly, I consider myself to be fairly knowledgeable and I deal with lots of clients who have varying mental health conditions um, but you've opened my eyes definitely to you know your condition and um, and the way that employers treat people um, and ways that you can change definitely and I just have one final question for you which I just wanted to ask you have you considered applying for the government legal service again or is that completely out of the window now? <laughs> No, it's um, funny you should ask that, actually. Part of the discussion at the EAT was the fact that I am due to apply to the Government Legal Service again, and that technically is part of the judgment, although not enforceable. Um, It was definitely discussed. So I will be applying to the Government Legal Service again in July 2017 um, in hope for a training contract or maybe even a, a pupillage because I know that you can transfer from one to the other. So it just depends on what positions they've got open and when. 
and yeah, and we'll just see how we go. I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I'm not hopeful that I'm going to get in, um, but it is certainly something I'm going to do, and it will test the boundaries as to whether or not they've put those reasonable adjustments in place. And if they haven't, then it puts me in a position to be able to enforce that in a high court. Whereas if I don't test the boundaries, then we're never going to know. Okay. Well, best of luck with it, Terry. I have to say, um, I take my hat off to you, having a four-year-old, doing your exams and going to an employment tribunal on your own. There aren't many people that can say that they could do that. So well done to you. And thank you so much for your time today on the podcast and for reaching out to me via the blog. And I, I know that you're um, not sort of out there on social media, but I do know that you're on Twitter. So um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, is that the best place to reach you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I am on Facebook as well. But um, yeah, I'm very cautious about who I allow onto my Facebook page. But yeah, definitely um, on Twitter. That's an open profile. So anybody can contact me on there, either private message me or just tweet me in the open arena. Um, and that's not a problem at all. I think it's at T.I. Brooks with an E. Great. So I was just thinking, if somebody is listening to this, who can offer you a training contract or an opportunity, because, you know, you're clearly very knowledgeable about this subject and you've taken a lot of time and very passionate. So if somebody does want to reach out to you, if they maybe have an opportunity for you, then they can contact you via Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I could also give you an email address. Well, what we'll do is we won't say it on the podcast, just so that you don't, but if obviously my email address is out there, um, it's alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. And if you are, um, you know, wanting to get in touch to pass on a message to Terry, then I'm happy to do that because I've got your, your contact details, haven't I? Just yeah. in case. I don't want to give out your email address <laughs> in case you get inundated. <laughs> well, that's wishful thinking, I think, but, um, yeah. Yeah, if, if only um, if the opportunity is out there with the right employer and um, an employer is willing to give me a chance, then um, I'm certainly you know not going to turn that down, and I'd certainly you know give it my best. Um, okay. Well, we'll round up the podcast now, and I'd just like again to say thank you very much to Terry, and wish you all the best for the future. And do stay in touch and let us know uh, how you get on with your job search. I will do. Yeah, I'll um, keep you posted as to how it goes with the government legal service um, in July. It, certainly, if I don't hear anything else uh, before that from anyone, um, or don't get any other job opportunities. Um, but I will be planning on doing my PhD part time next year, anyhow. Um, so I'm certainly going to stay within the legal field, and um, certainly for the next six years. Um, but yeah, it would certainly be nice to get some hands-on work. Oh, good for you. Thanks so much, Terry. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this week's podcast. As we said, if you do want to get in touch with Terry, then you can email me. It's alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk and I'd be happy to pass on the message or to connect you if you need to. And once again, thanks for listening and have a great week. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you, that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.